So we're uh, in Philippians chapter 1 uh, this evening, and uh, I, I enjoy uh, Philippians um, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I've shared before that uh, sort of a life's verse and an anchor verse that I hold to is Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. A lot of people enjoy that. Its, it's meaning is uh, you know very deep, being confident of this, Paul says, uh, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And he's obviously referring to the fact that Jesus Christ had begun a work in the people at Philippi. And uh, Paul has a confidence in the Lord that uh, the Lord is going to continue to perform that work of growth and maturity all the way uh, to the day of the Lord when they're all able to be together again. So um, the letter was written uh, while Paul uh, was waiting for his court appearance before Caesar. Uh, it was probably right around A.D. 61. Um, he had been to this location in Macedonia uh, and ministered to uh, first um, Lydia and then uh, the Philippian jailer had been converted and the church in Philippi was born uh, from that. So there's there's a, a really powerful relationship and back history with Paul and the church at Philippi. As I said, his second missionary journey, and uh, as he's gone out and arrives in Philippi, Philippi was um, Roman territory. So uh, that puts uh, its existence in that day and age at a different level than a lot of other countries and regions that Paul or anyone could go to. Paul's a Roman citizen. Uh, he, he was born a Roman citizen. You'll remember as he gets into that interaction uh, with uh, some of the people who were abusing him, uh, they say, you know, I paid a hefty price to become a Roman citizen. You know, basically, how did you afford it? And Paul says, oh, I was born a Roman citizen. And suddenly everybody's afraid because they uh, have imprisoned and beaten and done terrible things to a man who, if you do that to a Roman citizen, they don't even care about the circumstance. All that has to be verified is that you did it and they're going to execute you. So they don't they don't say, well, what were the mitigating circumstances that, you know, caused you to imprison this Roman citizen? You know, or, or, or you know, what was the horrible thing that took place to cause you to beat this man? All they want to know is, is he, in fact, a Roman citizen? Yes. Did you, in fact, you know, abuse him? Yes. Then you get the execution. So Paul's a Roman citizen. And in Philippi, uh, that being Roman territory, it was considered equal to Rome. So you're on home soil. So everything about being in that country means that you have 100% of your Roman privileges. Now consider that the community had freaked out upon him, beaten him and Silas, put them in prison. All of that being done to a you know, Roman citizen meant that there was going to be very serious consequences. That's why when they came and basically said, 
why don't you leave town? Right? They, they had been released from prison. Paul said, not going to happen. We're, we're staying right here, and we're going to continue to minister. I think that people today would be very wise to examine what's happening in our culture and the God-given rights that we have of freedom and liberty and worship that are being stripped away from us. And uh, you hear a bunch of Christian teachers cowering today uh, saying we need to just be obedient. Well, the laws of the land, like the laws of the land in Paul's day, make it such that we need to stand up for the freedom, not even for ourselves. It isn't an issue of pride. Maybe it is in someone else's mind, but our standing is up for, is for your benefit and for the next person's benefit. If they strip us of our freedoms, then they're stripping themselves of their freedoms. I don't know if you heard, but uh, our Governor Mills announced yesterday that she's going to be issuing an executive order that says now it's going to be mandatory and they're going to enforce it that you have to wear face masks in public. So uh, if you go into Home Depot, there's no question, and they're going to be policing this. So, you know, some people go, well, so what? Well, here's the thing. There's a whole big discussion about how effective that is, and I'm not going to get into that. Uh, if, if we can't have the freedom to make up our own minds about these things as a business owner or as an individual, then our freedom is lost. And if my freedom is lost, then the person who's making that rule, their freedom is lost. Freedom is lost. It's lost for everyone. You move us towards a communal state, a communistic state, then you are no longer living in a liberated state. The freedoms are being, it's not even an erosion. They're being hammered away at right now. And uh, we, like Paul, need to lead by godly example, stand up and just say, I'm not going to do this. Uh, if, if that's your mindset, if that's where you're at, know that you're going to pay the cost like Paul did. Okay, I mean, he's, he's writing this letter from prison. So keep in mind that people do end up paying the price for defending freedom when there are tyrants that are trying to remove freedom. But the strength, notice as we read through this, how he talks about his imprisonment and his persecution is strengthening the people at the church in Philippi. It's giving them the backbone to stand up for their faith. Uh, they're literally laying their lives on the line. And when they watch how Paul is doing it and the strength and the dignity with which he is defending the faith and defending freedom and inspires them to do the same thing rather than to cower in fear and to be dominated by a world that wants to shut their mouths. You're going to see greater and greater influence on the left wing godless liberal side of things stripping everyone of their freedoms until you know we'll incrementally move to where we're like Canada it will move to where we're more like Europe and eventually it will become just like 
those oppressed nations of communism and Islam and all around the world where freedom has been stolen. It's a, it's a question of freedom or slavery. And that's always what it's about. If, if people you know, don't want to open their doors to people that don't wear masks, don't open your doors. That's your prerogative as a business owner, right? But, but if, if someone does want to and says, we you know, keep social distance, we take care, we have all kinds of ability to promote cleanliness uh, here, we're taking all kinds of precautions, uh, and now someone comes in and says, no, you're going to have to take this measure. And then there's going to be another measure, and there will be another. This, this is a probe at the opportunity to create enslavement, where one group has total control and the rest of the populace is in submission. So Paul is uh, writing to them, and in verse 1 he says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints, number one, in Christ, who are in Philippi, and with the bishops, number two, and the deacons. So on the outset, these are the three recipients of his letters, or this letter that he's addressing. And he does have uh, some differences in this letter where he addresses more specifically the general body of Christ, which he refers to here as the saints, uh, and then more directly addressing what we would say as pastors, bishops, those that are overseers, uh, and then those who help serve the body of Christ as deacons. So Timothy's with Paul, and um, Timothy joined Paul uh, when they went to Macedonia. Uh, they, they had a number of different circumstances that took place, and uh, the Lord blessed the relationship, and Paul now uh, talks about Timothy as a son in the faith. Uh, the term bondservant, we've talked about countless times. Uh, Old Testament law said that if an individual wanted to make himself a bound servant for life of a particular individual, then he could strike an agreement with that person where they would house him or her, take care of them for the rest of their life, and that servant would remain bound to them and serve them for the remainder of their days. The ritual that took place was taking the servant to the doorpost of the house, stretching their earlobe over the door post of the house, putting an awl on it and nailing their ear lobe to the door. They would remove the awl and then put a golden earring in their earlobe. And anyone that saw that, uh, it is thought that the golden earring represented the chain, the link of a chain that bound them to that household. Their ear was nailed to the door, and the thing that symbolized their ear being nailed to the door was the golden ring. Um, several times, authors of the scripture refer to themselves as bond servants of Jesus Christ. Uh, I know this small class has heard these examples many times, but I'll remind us again that uh, 
our master, Jesus, and being bond servants to him means that our ear must be fastened to him. We have to hear what it is that he says and what he teaches. Our hearts and our minds need to listen uh, to him and, and thereby our minds, our lives and our conduct needs to be governed by what we hear from our master. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God, Romans ten seventeen tells us. So we need to be affixed to um, the household of Jesus Christ and obedient to Jesus as our master. Now, uh, a little explanation, uh, saints, bishops, and deacons. Uh, saints is uh, a term that's been wildly abused. Uh, you have uh, the Roman Catholic institution, which has turned this into uh, like super saints, uh, you know, people that have special powers, miracles have been attributed to them, a group of people vote on whether they're actually a saint or not, and then they're, you know, the, it's, it's interesting that uh, so many abuses go on inside Christianity, and, and then a group canonizes them, which is a, a foolish terminology, because the word canon, in our understanding of Christianity, means the read or the read, or that which is read. Um, so when we talk about the canonized scripture, uh, that's because the first century church was reading the same 66 books of the Bible you have in your book today. It isn't because uh, a group of people got together, and, and there are those that teach that. Oh, they had you know, the Council of Trent or the Council of Worms or the Council. It never took place that a body of Christian leaders got together and said, okay, uh, everybody in favor of including Genesis. And uh, you know, I, and okay, so Genesis is in. And, uh, anybody in favor of Exodus? And I, and okay, Exodus is in. And, you know, they didn't go through the Bible and canonize the Bible. What was going on was the early Christians recognized, nah, the book of Maccabees doesn't pertain strongly to our New Testament walk as Christians. Yes, it's a book of historicity regarding the Jewish religion and the Jewish history, and it's worthy of being read, but it's not something that if you don't read it, your faith is going to suffer. Okay, and I'll give you a, an example. Uh, Jesus references the Maccabean Wars. Uh, when we read that he was going up to the temple for the winter festival. That's him honoring what today we would call Hanukkah. Okay? Jesus understood the history and followed it. It's, it's, it so it's an acceptable thing, but it's not a necessary thing. And the early Christian church, church understood that. So, so what happened was they collected the books and literally stitched them together so that they had from Genesis to Revelation, and these were the books that were read. These were the books that they studied. So they referred to this as the canonized Bible, the read Bible, those books which we read. Okay. That gets changed and turned into that which is approved of by church leadership. And that's not what it means at all. So now you've got a group of people that 
propose each year? Should we should we saint you know some former pope? Should we saint a particular nun? Should we saint and everybody votes in favor and I and then they canonize that person? It's it's hijacking of terminology. Here's the deal. I go through all of that explanation not to beat that up. I, I, I go through all of that explanation to get us back down to the simplicity of what it means to be a saint. Right? A, a saint is an individual who is trusting Jesus Christ for their salvation from hell. So every single person in this room is a saint. We're all waiting on and hoping in the salvation that comes from only Jesus Christ. So when Paul addresses the saints here, we need to understand that ha that has strong application to us. Uh, th there's a great uh, portion of the body of Christ who reads the, the letter of Philippians and they think, well, this letter doesn't really have anything to do with me. Because it was written to the saints and the bishops and the deacons. And in their mind, I'm none of those things. No, no. All of us are saints, and and you know, we have the opportunity to serve Christ in the body, and and it is written to bishops would more apply to pastors, and deacons are quite literally anyone that would serve the body of Christ. So really, most of this letter is written to all of us. There's a lot of application here. Uh, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've dwelt on the fact that everybody longs for the peace, but if we're not experiencing the grace, we're robbing ourselves of the peace. And, um, you know, like I said, the few of us in this room are so accustomed to this that maybe we're thinking, well, yeah, you made the point. Move on. Well, how about this? Um, sometimes you can examine your own heart and your own life and recognize there's no peace or not much peace in your life. And sometimes that pertains to the fact that we're not pouring out his grace. We might want his grace, but are you giving it to other people? You know, yes, you can be a recipient of it, but when we read the Lord's Prayer and it says, you know, forgive me my trespasses or forgive me my sins as I forgive those who sin against me. Uh, you hear Jesus saying, if you do not forgive, neither will you be forgiven. If we're not pouring out the grace, then basically, uh, you know, we're moving out from underneath the grace. And, the, and grace needs to be a thing that flows through us, that, that it's coming into our lives and that we're administering it to others. Yeah. The minute that we're, you know, we go from handing out the grace readily of, oh, this poor guy and that poor gal, and they just need the love of the Lord to, oh, you just really offended me. I don't know if I'm ready to hand that out. Retain the grace? What are we doing to ourselves in that moment? I don't ever want the grace of God to stop working in my life. I don't ever want his forgiveness to stop working in my life. I don't ever want uh, the, the Jesus people, you know, the, the hippies, the young hippies of the late 60s and early uh, 70s, uh, 
would they had a statement and they actually sang songs uh, about uh, staying under the spout where the glory comes out. Just staying underneath the faucet, you know, letting God's glory, his grace pour down upon you. Moving away from that is a thing that's very detrimental, not only to us, uh, but to everyone we're ministering to. There's a change that occurs in our lives when bitterness steps in, uh, when grace dries up. Consider how that might apply. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. There's a very gracious statement, right? You might want to just uh, keep that handy for your text messages. <laughs> you know, I shoot that off to people all the time because I need it. You know, I'll get a text and just think, oh, man, I haven't heard from them in a while. And I do. I thank God upon every remembrance of them, whoever they might be. You know, it just it doesn't matter if their situation has been strained and difficult. I recognize the grace of God working in their life and my life. And wow, what a blessing that the Lord and his graciousness is constantly uh, being thankful and grateful to me. I, I, uh, I heard a song uh, yesterday. I just scanning through and I think the Lord like perked my ear to the lyrics. I'm unfamiliar with the song, but as I, I went through, just banging through stations, just reaching over and, you know, going like, you know, next station, next station. And I, I hear this line that says, no one's praying for me. And I stopped and it's some, you know, hard rock song. And it's just, the whole song is bitterness. I don't know who it was or what it was about, but then I, I heard correctly. They come back around in the hook to the, the chorus, and sure enough, that's what he's saying. Is you know, basically all of this anger and bitterness in my life is because no one's praying for me. And I thought, well, how sad that he doesn't know that Jesus Christ lives to constantly make intercession for us. Jesus Christ is praying for you, right? The rest of the world might have written you off. The rest of the world might hate you. The rest of the world might have you know, put their bullseye right on you and be targeting you for all of their animosity, but not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is filled with compassion, love, and grace. And as he remembers us, he has a thankfulness of heart. He has a joy and a wonder in his thought process about me. That's crazy that, that he just overlooks all that I am in order to love me. In that way. And yet, you know, as the scriptures record, often I'm more like that wicked servant who will grab another fellow servant by the throat and say, You owe me. You know, out of our flesh, out of our humanness. We, we what? Are we better than God? We think ourselves better than God? That God would forgive you. God would be gracious with me, but I'm not going to forgive you. Uh, that's, that's lethal. In the process, as that's really inappropriate. Here, this wonderful statement: "I thank my God upon every remembrance of you." That's partly because the church at Philippi was wonderful, right? Paul says something like that to the church at Corinth, but it's not quite that, right? Because they've let bitterness come in, and they have rejected Paul, and they have an animosity towards him, and they've done him harm. So. As he's addressing the church at Corinth, it is strong, rebuking correction. 
Not so with this church. When he looks back to this church, he goes, ah, oh, the church of Philippi. <laughs> there's a goodness to it. There's a grace to it. There's, there's a love to it. Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. All Requests for you all with joy. That's um, quite a strong believer that can be bound in prison uh, facing a death sentence who can say, every time I think of you guys, I'm filled with joy. His heart is not imprisoned in his circumstances. So very often, uh, we're basically like the thermostat. You know, situation's really good, we're really joyful. Situation's really bad, we're really negative. And Paul is in a really negative situation, and he has joy. And he has gladness. And he has remembrance, and he has prayer. His, his attitude, this is what I'm saying about in his suffering, he is serving as an inspiration for these people. That as they're receiving these letters, they're recognizing, wait a minute, look, look at the joy that's recorded in this. Look at the love that's recorded in this. Look at the happiness that's recorded in this. This guy's in prison. You know, it's almost like uh, it should be the reverse role, right? They're the ones that are out in freedom, enjoying as much of their lives as they still have intact. And poor Paul is in prison. We should send him a care package. We should send him a letter. We should, you know, encourage this guy and lift him up. And instead, they're getting letters of encouragement from Paul. Uh, th that's the way to be right there. That regardless of what life is dealing you, you actually have the relationship with the Lord that is encouraging to others. Huh. So, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Thank goodness that there is a continuation. And thank goodness that there is a completion to the work that Jesus Christ began. Because we can look at where we're at presently and get very discouraged sometimes. Because we have a goal of where we think we should be or where we would want to be. And where we currently are falls far short of that. And so that negativity leads us to the place of thinking, well, perhaps I'm a failure. You know, am I really a believer? Am I really a child of God? Am I really a Christian? Well, pause that thought for a moment and just look at where you began. Is there not a massive distance that has been covered from where you began with the Lord to where you currently are? So the progress has taken place. So now just take that duration of time and the progress that has occurred and extend it out in front of you and know that what Christ has begun to do in you, he will continue to do. And that's what Paul recognizes, is that, yeah, you're a work in progress. You're continuing on. Yeah. He tells the church that positionally you're already perfect. Hard to imagine. Because we're in Christ positionally. There's a growth and a maturity that's taking place to us here on the timeline. Uh, but salvation is not a thing that happens incrementally. Are you saved or not? Yes, is the answer. If you're trusting Jesus Christ for salvation, then you are saved. Right? 
It isn't, you know, any time that we, we get it in our head that, that, you know, this progress that we're in is somehow the salvation that we're acquiring, then what you're really saying is my salvation is through works. I'm working my way to completion. No. I mean, this completion that he's talking about is that continued growth. I, I just look at the way I react to things today. I mean, maybe it's just age, but, you know, the flighty immaturity of, you know, my teen years when I first came to the Lord compared to where I am today at, at 51 years old. Very different. And, and I have to attribute a lot of that, uh, not just to age, but to the actual maturity that Christ has created. So there is a progress, and I'm grateful for the progress and the promise of completion. Seven, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you, all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And I can understand uh, there are certain people that we long for in fellowship. You know, the body of Christ is wonderful. You can find fellowship in lots of churches uh, wherever you go, wherever you travel. But there's always a, a specific group. Maybe your home church is, you know, a big chunk of that and, and you think of those that you're closest to then there are those particular individuals who throughout your life have ministered to you and when you think of them there's there's a deeper response and, and a stronger longing and urge for and that's sort of where Paul is at with the church at Philippi that as he looks back to them there's a joy and fellowship that occurred that he has this longing, even though you know he's he's in chains, he recognizes that his being in chains has an effect upon them. That, that they're concerned and and they are worried and they are prayerful for uh, what he's going through, and so their longing for him is the same longing that he has for them because of the affection of Jesus Christ. Verse nine, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Now, a lot of churches, especially today, just want to take uh, this approach of always being loving. And they do not use knowledge and discernment. You know, every situation, just let's be loving. Uh, I got a phone call last night uh, from a fellow minister who... Uh, <clears throat> At first, I just was, you know, excited to hear from him, and he gets to the point of telling me that he's dealing with a current circumstance uh, of uh, another individual that he's trying to help out. And as we talk along, I realize that what he's doing is calling me and asking me to participate in the conversation with him so that this person he's ministering to can hear that he's conferring with another minister who is coming to the same conclusions of 
you need to do more to take care of yourself. This person basically is like, oh, my current circumstances are desperate. Why don't you take care of all my problems for me right now? And so this fellow minister happened to be in town and he just said, hey, let me call a fellow pastor who's right here in the area and we'll talk about it. And what he did was he talked to me with that person in the presence of the phone call. And by the time we got done, that person he was helping was agreeing with him who was conferring with me that what we need to do is help you get to Bangor and you make some phone calls and we'll help you spend the night in Bangor maybe and then the people from your life can come and help you out of your problem. Rather than his church or my church, your church, having to just open the valve and pour out a bunch of resources on a person who's made a mess of their own circumstances, right? There's a man who loves the individual who's in crisis, but had enough knowledge and discernment to even pull me into the circumstances so that we could love that person, not we didn't have to just kick them to the curb, but also not allow them to take advantage of two churches. You know? So there's there is a wisdom. I I now I'll leave that discussion alone. I watch churches around me who just have it in their mind that oh we, we need to just have love, just always have love, and they don't use any discernment at all. And, and uh, I watch them put themselves in really, and their congregations in really vulnerable circumstances. Um, you know, so, some of which I'm not even going to describe because if people on the internet heard me say it, they would go, hey, I can go take advantage of that church. Uh, the church needs to use all of these things combined. Yes, love. Yes, that selflessness of serving and giving and and benevolence. And I'll even say, and money and resources. Right, loving, giving, caring, doing for. But you need to use knowledge and discernment with that. Not not, not just, you know, this love and acceptance uh, that the world is so, so willing to take advantage of. Verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may... Be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now think about what was just said in light of how that love, knowledge, and discernment are going to generate those things, you guys. Using love combined with knowledge and discernment, you know, there is so much that the church approves of today that if they were using knowledge and discernment, they wouldn't approve of. They would automatically recognize, oh, that's messed up. That isn't Christian doctrine. That doesn't agree with what Jesus Christ taught or thought or showed us. Without using knowledge and discernment, then the church goes astray. Approving of the things that are excellent comes through the combination of of, of many other things at times, but in particular here, as Paul describes, the use of love, knowledge, and discernment. Boy, I, I mean, I, I hope I can grind that into us here this evening. 
you know, some people, uh, when you pull back, right, from an opportunity, somebody comes with their hand out and says, oh, please give to me. And you pull back and say, what's going on in this circumstance? There are certain people within the body of Christ that say, oh, you're cynical. <laughs> yeah, you, know, you should be more loving. No, I'm being as loving as I possibly can be. I want to help. I, I even want to, if I have to, allow myself to err on the side of grace and be taken advantage of. I, I'm not so overly concerned about it that, you know, somebody making me drive all the way to Timbuktu or, you know, pour out resources. I, I mean, whatever. That's between them and the Lord. But, but the Lord wants us to use knowledge and discernment. You know, I, I, I recognize, I got that phone call last night. I recognized if I go all the way through with what this person is asking for, I'm not going to be back in this town until tomorrow morning at like, you know, 7.30. <laughs> I would have left my house last night at like 8 and, you know, driven, like I say, to Timbuktu and poured out who knows how much resource. And, you know, in the end, some conversation and we can help you get to Bangor and get a place to stay and your friends and family can come take care of you. You know, and, and, and then your situation will be, we'll help you not be in a tragic situation right now. And that'll help you pick up your responsibility and take care of yourself. That's not unloving. Using discernment, using knowledge. And in the meantime, he got to spend, you know, a little over an hour and a half with a pastor who shared the gospel with him continuously throughout that whole process. It is important that the church not just allow itself to be taken advantage of. That is not excellent. That is not approved. We need to have the discernment and the knowledge, you know, the sincerity, right? We've talked about that, the not having wax, the idea uh, of, of not having anything false about ourselves, uh, you know, that, that what we do, in sincerity, wouldn't have any falsehood involved in it. Uh, the, you know, the, the clay, the potters of the day, making vessels that, you know, in the firing, in the kiln, or, or otherwise would become cracked or broken, and they would mix clay and wax together and, and sort of pack and glue it all back together so that it looked good, looked intact, looked whole, until you got home and, you know, filled it with water and the weight caused the handle to fall off. Or, or, or the heat of the liquid you poured in it caused the wax to melt. And you suddenly recognize this is broken. There was wax in it. So the term sincere means without wax. Potters would start to advertise, you know, our pottery is sincere, meaning without wax, which became the word we use today for sincere. Be sincere. Don't want you, I, don't, I don't want to have any falsehood, in, in, you know, in you, in me. Paul is saying that within the church, this use of, of love combined with knowledge and discernment allows us to approve of things that are, in fact, excellent in regard to the faith, uh, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Uh, there's an offense in, in what the world today calls love and toleration, and there's so much intolerance in what they refer to as tolerance. You know, if we stand up today and say, look, LBGTQ community needs to get right with Christ, repent of their sins and be saved. 
Literally. I mean, this could get earmarked on Facebook as hate speech. This broadcast right now could be earmarked as hate speech and taken down and removed for just saying that. That's not loving. You know, that's insincere. The hypocrisy that's involved with them saying, oh, that's intolerant. Well, wait a minute. Aren't you being intolerant of us declaring the truth in removing these things from YouTube and, you know, Facebook and other broadcast locations such as that? We as believers need to be this light to the glory and praise of God. To the glory and praise of God. That needs to be our motivation behind this love, knowledge, and discernment. Not some worldliness and acceptance of the world and incorporation into that which is worldly. That doesn't have anything to do with the approval and the motivation of the believers in the church today or at the church of Philippi. In verse 12, he says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evidence to the whole palace guard and to the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul has been in this prison. Uh, this is like house arrest that he's currently referring to, uh, but it is under guard and attached to a Roman soldier uh, so that he's continuously you know, ministering to people that are in Roman government. Uh, those that are lawyers, those that are, you know, servants to the governor, those that are, you know, Roman centurions and guards that are caring for him. He's demonstrating his faith to them. When he was first thrust into this imprisonment, there was a whole bunch of Christianity that was looking at his circumstances like, oh, wow, Paul's whole ministry just fell apart. You know, he was doing so good, but that's it. He's been arrested. He's been you know, put under guard, and, and now he's, you know, headed to the government, headed to Caesar. It's done. It's it's over. And what they're realizing is, oh, my goodness, like, Paul is converting his guards and converting. By the time he's done, he's talking about all of those that are of the household of faith that are part of Caesar's household. I mean, who else gets the opportunity to preach to these people in this way the, with that boldness, right? There might even have been believers in Caesar's household, but you got to know that if they've got a job, and I don't care if they're emptying the trash uh, or if they're the right-hand man of the king, they're having to be very careful about everything they say about their faith because their job is on the line. Even their life is on the line. Paul, he's already a prisoner. He's already appealed to Caesar. When he stands in front of Caesar, uh, the greatest likelihood is there's only going to be one of two outcomes. He's going to say, you're set free, you're innocent, or he's going to say, off with his head. And that's how Paul is looking at this situation. So you know what? Everybody knows why I'm here for preaching the gospel. So let's just go ahead and preach the gospel. 
And that's what he's doing. In these chains, everyone's becoming aware of this really is the only reason this guy is here. Th think about this, right? If he's some criminal and he's sort of thrown his Christianity over his crimes and been arrested and now he's trying to convince everybody, I've been arrested for being a Christian. And, you know, there's a crime that he's trying to hide underneath all of that. That's going to become apparent. As he's in this imprisonment, as he's dealing with these guards, as he's dealing with his household, they're going to they're gonna see after a while, oh, this guy's actually just a criminal. And, and he's cloaking it in this Christianity. And, and what they're coming to realize with every passing day is, Oh, the, the only thing this guy is actually guilty of is believing in Jesus Christ for salvation. The Jews want him dead because he believes Jesus is the Messiah. And, 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 and think about this. As they're in that household, they're getting the other side of the story from the Roman officials who dealt with the trial of Jesus, the execution of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and they're putting the pieces together going, no kidding. This is the truth. They're being converted in the process. So as Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, he's saying to them, everyone that's around me is becoming aware of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ the same way you guys are. In a providence of Rome that is controlled by these same Roman governors, they're realizing behind the scenes, a bunch of these people that are ruling over us are being ministered to by Paul. Example, there is a Bible study that is occurring in the White House every single day. The same type of Bible study you're having right now is happening in the White House. The changes that you see happening in our culture, the great conflict. When our president walks out of the White House and goes and stands across the street with his Bible in his hand in front of that church, that is not insincere. That is sincere. That is without falsehood. That is without wax. Now, now hear me in that because the person that made the loudest complaint about that was the female pastor of that church and her great animosity towards Donald Trump because she's supportive of the LBGTQ community. She's supportive of everything that the scripture is against. This is the type of encouragement that Paul is putting out. When I start this out and I'm talking about the freedoms of our nation being eroded, it isn't that I'm so caught up in you know the current events that I just have to add them in to this sermon. This is totally applicable to our day and what is going on. Paul's in prison for the cause of Christ, and he's preaching to that household, and that household's being ministered to. Maybe not Caesar, but definitely those of his household are being saved. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, some also from goodwill. Now, uh, it, it's interesting to me to watch, even in our own community, 
as people use Christianity as a tool. Rather than it being who they are, they recognize it as, oh, well, I, I can express my faith here, and that's going to open this door and open that door for me, and let me shake these hands and get me inside this building and into this group and give access to, again, an insincerity. You know, Paul is saying there are people like that. So what? <laughs> that really doesn't matter. There are people that preach out of envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Look, the, the people that want to, I mean, for instance, you know, scream about Donald Trump and, you know, whatever thing from his past that they're pointing at. Uh, could I not pry apart every person's life in this room and point at your past? Could you not pry apart my life and point at my past and find things, right? Uh, I mean, uh, what he's doing right now is preaching Jesus Christ. He is holding up the same tenets, the same beliefs we have in re on almost every subject. You know, the bigger problem that our president has today is the fact that he's going against globalism. That's the biggest problem that he has. You know, one world order, one world leader, one world money, one world government. That's where that's where the rest of the planet is headed. And this man has stood up and said, no, federalism, individuality, nationality. That's what we need to defend. That's what we need to make strong. And the rest of the world political system is ready to just string him up. And that's a lot of what you see going on here. <clears throat> I don't care why. Not just me. This is what Paul is saying. I don't care why somebody preaches the gospel. I mean, I wish they would do it out of sincerity. But if you're going to preach the gospel, great. Please preach the gospel. Because if you're doing it because of envy or strife or you want to you know, make me somehow feel afflicted in my suffering, go right ahead. You know, try to cause me pain. If you're preaching Jesus, please keep preaching Jesus. The Lord will deal with the rest of it. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you. Again, now, 
Paul isn't wishing for death. He's not looking for an opportunity of suicide. He's, he's saying, I could give up and just let the circumstances, my political circumstances, my court circumstances, I could just let death come to me. But he's saying it's beneficial for the cause of Christ that I continue. Remember that the next time you're suffering horribly. The next time you're just dragging through the day, dragging through the month, dragging through the year. That you do have a purpose. And it is a selfless one. Where you bring the gospel to other people. Remember. Philippians chapter 1 verses 19 through 26. It is better for us individually to depart from this life and to go and be in the presence of the Lord. But as long as we're here, we have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody. Something I've noticed over the years, and I'll be quick about this and get to the closing section, but it's usually just as I'm feeling the worst about my current circumstances that I turn around and there's the moment that the Lord has orchestrated for me to share hope and Christ with someone else. If I let despair bring me to the place of hopelessness and giving up, then I wouldn't be there to share with them and minister to them all that Christ has done for me and with me and through me over the years. It is the selflessness that we need to focus on rather than the selfishness of our current circumstances. Let Christ use you to minister to others. 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition or destruction, right? And that's two part. Um, if they if they cower in fear, it's proof to the ones who would oppress them that they're destroying the Christian. If you stand in strength in the faith of Jesus Christ as people try to oppress you, it's proof of their destruction. So this term perdition is wasted or wastefulness or deterioration or, or destruction. Damnation is what it was thought of uh, in you know the days when this was uh, translated this way. You know, and in not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of destruction but to you of salvation and that from God. Stand strong that, that it would be that the individuals who persecute you experience that condemnation that, that is uh, you know, evidenced by your being strengthened by your faith in Christ. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you to suffer. Good news. You can suffer for Jesus Christ. Good news. You know, we often think of the gospel as just being the deliverance from hell. We also have the promise of the fellowship of his suffering. 
We're going to have fellowship with Christ in his suffering. You're going to be persecuted for your faith. It's been granted to you to suffer with Christ. You're thinking, I don't want any suffering. Do you want the glory? We all want the glory of Christ. We all want to be in his presence and experience the rewards and experience uh, the blessing of Jesus Christ. If you want the blessing, then you must experience the suffering. The suffering is evidence that you're a child of God. If the world loves you and you have comfort and ease, you need to be concerned about whether you've been coupled into the suffering of Christ and the glory. Having the same affliction which you saw in me and now here is in me. You're going to experience the same type of persecution that Paul has experienced. You're going to. The world is going to hate you. So embrace the idea. You're, you're much better off to prepare your heart and mind for the fact that the world is going to hate me. The world is going to reject me. Uh, that'll help you get over the desire to be loved by the world that has rejected God. It's much better to just reject that yourself. And also, you won't go through the suffering and the difficulties with so much anguish and torment and depression. You'll be able to rejoice in the fact that, hey, I'm suffering because of the Lord. I'm suffering with the Lord. And, and the likes of the Lord, like Paul and so many others that suffered for his sake. You're in good company when you're being persecuted because they persecuted the saints who were before you. So that's chapter one. We'll end right there and pick up uh, with chapter two next week. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you again uh, for your word and ask that you would help us to follow Paul's example, that we would love you and serve you and no matter the cost, that uh, as long as you have us here on this earth, we would embrace the idea that uh, you are at work in our lives and accomplishing what you want to, even in our suffering. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.